This is the word of God. It's eternally true. Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But each one must examine his own work and then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another. For each one will bear his own load. The one who has taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not lose heart in doing good. For in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. This is the word of the Lord. Now, in chapter 6, the Apostle Paul has been reminding the Christians in the church in Galatia of the work that they needed to be faithful in. You know that we have seen that the book of Galatians at the beginning deals with the issue of legalism, that they're not to think that they can earn the approval of God by having themselves circumcised or any of the other things that they can do. Um, But then at the end of the book, we get into... Um, what are called ethical instructions or commands. And in these commands, we have a number of uh, duties, a number of good works, doing good that uh, God lays before us as a church and as individuals through the Apostle Paul. And in the middle of these lists of good works that we're told to do, we find a statement inserted that's really quite intense, and it's verse 7 that we studied uh, before, do not be deceived, God is not mocked, for whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. Or we said that we could paraphrase it, don't be fooled, you can't thumb your nose at God. Now, if he left it with that, it would be kind of like the father that says to his son, you know, son, I've told you, take the trash out. If you don't take the trash out, uh, whatever the discipline is, you can't have dessert for the next three months. If I have to tell you, remind you to take the trash out next week, no dessert for three months. And so the father emphasizes the fact that he'll be faithful to his threat and that the son better remember to take the trash out. But then the father looks at the son and the dad says, don't lose heart in doing good. Because in due time, you'll reap if you don't grow weary. And so this is why Luther on this verse, verse 9, says that here the Apostle Paul and through the Apostle Paul, the Holy Spirit is being sweet with us. And he is giving us a tender remonstrance, a tender word that is supposed to woo us. The other one is a good swift kick in the rear. But this one is a soft and gentle and sweet word from God. And the sweet word is what? It says in verse 9, Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. You know, it's like a father saying to his uh, daughter, Look, you think that I can never be pleased, but I really can be. 
and you are a delight to me. So don't lose heart. You know, you will grow up to be a godly woman. But we have a little work left to do. All right. Do not lose heart in doing good. For in due time we'll reap if we do not grow weary. So then while we have opportunity, let's do good to all people, and especially to those who are the household of the faith. Now, if you read about Jesus, it says that Jesus himself grew weary in his work. And it says that the disciples grew weary. They were tired. What else would cause them to keep the little kids from coming to Jesus? Well, they're sick and tired of people. They know they can't turn the adults away, but they think they can turn the kids. And that gets them more quickly to whatever it was they wanted to do, going away alone for a while, having a meal, whatever it was. But Jesus said this in John 9, verses 4 and 5. He said, we must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. <clears throat> While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Well, the implication, <clears throat> excuse me, the implication of this statement of the Lord is that there were enticements to stop doing the work. Um, it's day we're to do the work that we're supposed to do. We are to be the light of the world. You know, you think of the commands of Scripture that we are to shine our light. We're not to put it under a bushel. That we're to be salt that doesn't lose its savor. That we're to salt in the world. You think of the statement in Scripture that says that the church is the pillar and foundation of the truth. Now ask yourself, do you enjoy in this world, in Bloomington, do you enjoy being the pillar and foundation of the truth? Do you get a kick out of it? Well, many of you actually... What a brother. Oh, it's your wife. Whoa! I just realized this goes there. <laughs> That's why I always stand down here. I'm going to come back down. That was your fault, Wayne. <laughs> I don't know where I was. Where was I? What did I just say? Oh, yeah. Do you enjoy being the pillar and foundation of the truth? Oh, and then I was going to say, many of you actually aren't. Many of you studiously avoid studiously avoid being the pillar and foundation of the truth in this community. Now, don't worry. That doesn't mean that you don't love Jesus. It means uh, that you have an area of disobedience in your life. And when I was in Partyville working with farmers, I didn't hassle them about that much. And I never stop hassling you about this. And the reason is that this whole community is set up to silence the conscience and the love of God of the Christian. Everything here conspires to cause you to go into la-la land and to think, you know, to be idiots. You know, to be all of a sudden dumb when you just got done doing your taxes very carefully. It's amazing how clearly you can understand the... Instructions, the IRS tax code. But when it comes to the Bible, you just don't see the application. You don't see how it bears on your 
lecture. You know? Very obtuse spiritually, but very precise financially. Now, listen. I'm the same way. Part of the reason that I'm loud and pushy is that I figure if I'm always leading aggressively that it'll cause me to not have time to think about the consequences. Do you, do you, do you understand that? <laughs> In other words, if I never start fearing man, then I'll always, to some degree, be headed towards the fear of God. And I'm not setting myself up as a model. I'm just saying, you know, don't look at other people and think that it's easy for them. We all have our ways of coping with obedience. You know, the guy that the Buddhist monk that poured gas over himself in Vietnam, you remember that image? You know, it was an irretrievable action. Once he lit the match and he started burning, it was over. And that's kind of how you have to live the Christian life in Bloomington. Pillar and foundation of the truth. You just light yourself, douse yourself with gas, light yourself, and then it's up to God. Larry Crabb said years ago something I've never forgotten. Every Christian should live their life in such a way that if God ever fails them, it's your toast. All right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? What about Daniel? Well, just go ahead. Let me handle the issue of my food for a while and then test me. Test God. And so, think about it. How do you decide what areas of doing good you're going to think about and you're going to examine your conscience on this morning. At random, I could pick just endlessly. I could go on here this morning for many hours talking about the areas of doing good that we really are weary of. You know, we really are weary of being the pillar and foundation of the truth, right? I mean, Scott Tibbs. You know... This guy has no sense of proportion. Now, every time you turn on a local talk show, there he is. Every time you open the editorial pick, there he is. Every time you check your email, there he is. Being the pillar and foundation of the truth. Here's another one. What about women and the calling God has given women of being mothers? Are we weary of well-doing? You know, once you're a mother, you're always a mother. You don't get old and stop being a mother. My mother is still my mother, and she's like 86. And when I need somebody to pray, I call my mom. You know, in America today, there are many women who are older who are done with their years of having children in their home and caring for them and they're very sad because they're bitter over those years that they lost. And you listen to them, they'll tell you they lost those years. And if you are a young woman who's pregnant with your second or third or fourth, and you tell them that you're pregnant, you know what those women will say to you? Those women will say to you, I'm sorry, sweetie. You know why? They grew weary of well-doing, and now bitterness poisons their relationships with motherhood through their children and their grandchildren. Now, I could spend, again, a half an hour at this point uh, talking to you husbands and fathers about how 
Your wife's bitterness is your responsibility. You need to love your wife as a mother. You know, we all get jealous when our children uh, are born and all of a sudden we find that we've married a lover, but we got a mother, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and we no longer have the undivided attention of our wives. They, she is completely owned by this little child that she has given birth to now. New day has come. And there are many, many women who uh, have grown weary of being a mother. And so they look back on the years and they just are cynical about them. Um, how are you growing weary and well-doing? How about your work? Some of you are very cynical about your jobs, fathers and husbands. You don't like it, but you feel you're trapped. And you have to persevere for your children and for your wife. And so you get this attitude towards work that Dorothy Sayers in her essay, Why Work, talks about where you work for the weekend. Everybody's working for the weekend. What is that? That's growing weary and well-doing. You don't think work is well-doing. You think it's just a, a gig that you do so that you can have the weekends or so you can have a wife and children. That's poison. It's just it's poisonous as a mother who no longer has her, her love for her motherhood. So how are you weary and well-doing? Well, now I want to go into the two things that are most immediately spoken of in the context of her exhortation. And those two things are what? If you look at the beginning of chapter 6, it says, it talks about us having a duty to help somebody who has fallen into sin. And that's what we call in the church, church discipline. And then if you look a little bit later, it says that the one who teaches should have those who are taught share all good things with him. So the two things we're dealing with are church discipline and what? Generally giving money. Giving money to the church for the support of the work of the church. Now, how do we grow weary and well-doing in those two areas? Well, let's start with money. The Bible says that those who teach us the word should have us share all good things with them. And as I said, generally the way that we, that we deal with that is, yeah, sometimes it's retreat speakers. Um, yes, there are a number of ways it can play out. And the general way that this will play out in your life is by you giving to the support of your pastors. And uh, so one of the things that we grow weary and well-doing is that we look at a pastor and we look at his financial needs and we say, does he have to have four children? I mean, doesn't he know how that happens? You know, do I have to support his fifth and sixth? You know, I mean, really? He can stop. So we look at the priorities of those that we support and we say, well, those aren't my priorities. I don't have to buy into those priorities. You know, blue jeans are good enough for David Carell in front of the church. Why do we have to buy Tim, you know, like wool? 
look at their cars, you know. If they had fewer children, they wouldn't have to have minivans. In other words, we pick, 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 you know. We look at their lives and we say, well, I don't have to buy into their lifestyle, you know. They can live in, you know, a teepee. As a matter of fact, elders, that's something we ought to keep in mind. You know, he's done it before. Stephen and his wife. Come on, what? It would take two teepees now? A whole teepee just for Linda? Okay, three teepees. <laughs> okay. The Bakers did used to live in a teepee. So if you want the story, you can talk to them afterwards. Um, but it's not just that we pick at the pastors. We can also just be resentful that um, so many people come to us for a handout. You know, everybody's looking to me for a handout. You know, why are they looking to me? That's all people care about with me is, is me giving them money. My father told a story this last week. I talked to a man that's writing a history of the beginning of InterVarsity, and my dad was involved at the beginning. And uh, so he wrote and asked what accounts and stories and things we had uh, we remembered from him. And I told him a story that I remember my dad telling. At the beginning of InterVarsity, instead of having the staff workers raise their own money, they had fundraiser who went out and raised the money so that the people that did the work with with the students could be free to do that work and not go around deputizing, trying to raise support. And this man one time was talking to a man in New England who was very, very wealthy. My parents lived on this man's farm uh, in a little cottage on their farm for the first couple of years of being the, the first staff for New England. And uh, this man was getting older and he was preparing to die. And so this fundraiser went to him and said to him, when you die, what are you going to do with your money? And the man said, well, I'm going to give it to my children. And the fundraiser said to him, uh, who, who did you get that money from? And he said, from God. And he said to him, then why are you giving it to your children when you die? And he said, because if I don't give it to them, they'll hate me the rest of their lives. So guess what? Well, there's... Um, there's two sides to the story. One side is, what do you think happened to those children? Those children turned away from God, both of them. One of them since has come back to the Lord after many, many years of slopping pigs. The other one still has not come back to the Lord and is living a life of unbelief. So, what does it profit a child to gain the whole world and lose their soul? You say, well, you're implying there's a connection between him giving his money to those children and their spiritual bankruptcy. You bet! Absolutely. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. The other side of the story, and this is the side I love, is that the fundraiser for InterVarsity never went back to that man for another penny. He had been, I think, the main supporter of InterVarsity till that point. And do you think InterVarsity had problems raising support 
No. Years later, when InterVarsity turned away from the truth of Scripture, in the headquarters, there's still many good staff workers, but when they turned away, and we were in Madison, we knew a lot of the people that ran InterVarsity, then they began to have trouble raising money. And then they made the decision that every individual staff worker would have to raise their money. It was shortly after that that my dad resigned from the board. The Bible tells us that those who teach us are to have us share all good things with us. And we have many, many excuses for why we grow weary in giving. Many. The lifestyle of the person who teaches us. Resentment that we keep giving and giving and giving. There can be many, many reasons, but they all add up to the statement that Scripture makes. Jesus says what? He says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. One of the things I was thinking about in connection with this is to ask you as a congregation whether your treasure is in the church. Do you have a treasure, financially, a treasure in the church? And you say, well, this is heaven, you know. I say, what is the church? Is, is the church a, a child, a bride that Christ doesn't love? You know, the, the church is heaven on earth. We have this, in, this inclination to like, you know, be completely absorbed in our own selves and our own flesh and then like in heaven. Me and heaven. But the book of Galatians was written to a church. And when we're born again, God puts us in the church. And guess what? The church becomes our true brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers. And so if you want to know where your treasure is, ask yourself whether you give treasure to the church. Now, I'm not saying this because our church is hurting. We're doing better this year than the year before, better that year than the year before. It's been a steady progression of, of goodies in our church. Yeah, we do have a deficit, but every church has a deficit this year, and we'll ask you before the end of the year to knock it off, and we'll, we'll join in. Your pastors do lead this congregation in giving financially. Sort of a shell game. You give to yourself, you know. But we do give. But let me ask you, what, where is your treasure? Now, forget money. What about time? You're weary in well-doing, weary in giving time. Remember I said that later I'd bring it up again, so here it is. What about Wednesday night? We need people to help with our Wednesday night program. Where are you Wednesday night? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You say, oh, you know, the pastor's a merchant. He's always selling. He's a shopkeeper. And I say, bonk. This is not true. I love the church because it's the bride of Christ, because here we have the fellowship of the saints. Here we are free to preach the word of God. This is the church. If Christ gave himself up for individual Christians, shouldn't you love individual? No, but, 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 but that's not what it says. It says Christ gave himself up for what? Now let's go on to church discipline. At the beginning of chapter 6, the Bible tells us that we who are spiritual are to work with those who have been deceived and have been led astray, helping them to return. 
And that's a hard work. Because typically when you discipline, people hate you for it. Now, there are some who repent. But if you were to talk to the elders of this church, you would find that there's a long, long progression of those who the Lord has not given the grace to repent, but rather have been consumed by their own pride and have hardened their heart against rebukes and corrections. And so our country is filled with pastors and elders who pander to their people. And this is always the way it's been. You know that the Bible tells us that in the last days there will be those who will be surrounded by people because they say what the people want to hear. And so it's very difficult today not to give in to the American seduction of scratching itching ears and of judging the integrity of your ministry by the number of people that are there, by the amount of money that's given. And this is very, very seductive. It's very enticing for us to look at the results of our ministries. And I like to quote Mother Teresa saying what? I hope you all know the quote. She says, God does not call us to be successful. He calls us to be what? Faithful. And there's a lot of things that the world will hold out to you trying to get you to not correct and rebuke. Did you notice what Gandalf did? He talked about how much he appreciated having been rebuked. And then when he said, so that someday I hope that I will, you know, be able to encourage you. (laughs) He didn't promise that he'd rebuke us. Well, why? Well, any idiot knows, you know. It's because that seems to be a little bit proud, you know. He's willing to receive it, but he's certainly not going to claim that someday he'll give it, you know. And yet again, if we go home and we look at fathers and mothers in the home, we know that we do love them for their rebukes. We know that their rebukes are their love of us. We know if we're not rebuked, we're illegitimate children. This is what it says in Hebrews. And so when it comes to coming alongside those who have been deceived, we know that it's very, very difficult for us to continue to do it. Um, I can tell you that in elders' meetings of this church, uh, You can spend one hour deciding who's going to go and talk to somebody. It can take a whole hour. And you'll hear things like, I've been talking to him for 12 years. I'm weary and well-doing. You do it. No, I'm not going to do it. I already have other obligations. How about Joe? Uh, I'm going on vacation this week. And what is it? It's all all growing weary and well-doing. But there are other more devious things. If you don't want to just be that blatant in in saying that you don't want to go rebuke somebody, there are other ways of getting it done. What are they? Well, one way to get it done is to argue that, you know, we we shouldn't be thinking about things like this. Let people live their own lives, you know. Judge not lest you be judged. Let him who is without sin among you cast the first stone.
very sophisticated and very biblical reasons to justify growing weary and well-doing. Because the Bible's very, very clear. Elders don't love their people if they don't correct them. Fathers don't love their children if they don't correct them. God doesn't love you if he doesn't correct you. Yeah, this is what Scripture says. Now you say, well, why are you talking about church discipline? Well, because that's the context. Look at verse 1 of chapter 6. Look at it. What does it say? What it says is, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens. Do not grow weary in well-doing. So are you weary in well-doing? Are you weary of sitting and listening to sermons? You know, week after week, I go and I want to be encouraged and Tim discourages me. Huh? Well, listen. Despite what you may think, I do love you. And the elders love you. And if they do exhort you, it's from love. Now, sometimes they may be impatient. And sometimes they, as a matter of fact, anytime they rebuke you, they'll make mistakes. The voice will be too high, too low, too loud, too soft. It'll be at the wrong time. It'll be when your wife is listening. It's impossible to do anything in this life without failing. But if they wait until they have the perfect rebuke at the perfect time in the perfect way, they'll never do it. Have you ever noticed that if you wait to witness to the people that you work with until you've had a perfect witness for one week, you'll never witness. It just will never happen. And so cut all the excuses and come back to God And say to him, I will not grow weary in well-doing. I'll take joy in it. Because why? In due time, you're going to reap. A farmer that puts the seed in the soil, thinking that within a week he'll get the crop, this is never going to happen. I have had the experience this last uh, summer of, uh, and fall of getting a dog. A dog that Ben and Michael left behind when they went to South Africa. And this dog is very well trained, so you can let it loose outside and it won't run, generally. Unless your voice gets an edge of anger and then it won't come because it's going to wait to come until you're in a good mood again. So when the dog needs to go... You send him out in the yard. You don't bother walking him back to the back of the yard or the woods or to somebody else's yard. And so in our front yard, we have just a ton of round places that the grass is gone. Completely gone. And then we bought this soccer goal for for Taylor. 
and there's this huge place in front of the soccer goal. The grass is completely gone. All right. And I spend my life trying to keep up with the dog, with Taylor, and with the cable company that always digs in our yard because we've got the box in the back of it. You know, you no sooner get some soil there, you get seed planted, the trenching machine comes down the side of the yard again. You know, it's just constant, you know. And uh, so if I were to just get jaded and I were to say, well, you know, I never stay ahead of this. It's just a losing game. Then what I'd do is I'd have these bags, these plastic bags of grass seed. I'd keep them in my garage and I would never open them. Right? But not what I have to do is I have to get the bag and I have to bring it outside and I have to take the seed and then I have to throw the seed in the soil and then what happens to the seed? It dies and rots. And from the ground there blossoms red life that will endless be. Okay? So... Don't grow weary in well-doing. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, he shall reap. The man that sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let's pray.